Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello from Los Angeles. This is Adam Huss. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. My guest for this episode is Nathan Stewart, and he's got one of the rarest and coolest jobs in wine. He is the in-house shepherd for Tablas Creek Winery. I don't know if you know Tablas Creek, uh, but suffice it to say that if you had to pick the greatest wineries in the United States, by almost any measure, Tablas Creek would be in the top five on that list. They introduced many of the Rhone varieties of grapes to the United States and were among the first to popularize them. They're the only winery to have imported and cultivated all of the grape varieties of Chateauneuf de Pop. And in addition to that, Tablas Creek has been biodynamic for years and recently became the first winery in the world to become regenerative organic certified. They're like an incubator winery for holistic ideas about how farming can be improved to create healthier vines that are more integrated into the natural landscape so that wine is as good as it possibly can be. Nathan's role as the shepherd is integral to this vision. More than that, he helps explain why animals are essential to not only regenerating vineyard soil health, but if properly managed, they can be the key to saving the health of the planet. Nathan takes us back in time to when the buffalo roamed in immense herds to understand how plants, soil, and animals all evolved symbiotically together. He tells us about how we've now begun to integrate these principles into the best farming practices today to reduce carbon emissions, improve soil health, and save money. And he gives us a vision of the future in which vineyards are actually built to accommodate and maximize the presence and influence of animals. I can't think of a more hopeful and revolutionary way to start 2021 than with this interview with a wine shepherd. Enjoy! Hey Nathan, thanks uh, for, for joining the show. It's really great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. The really fun thing about talking to you is you are a shepherd. It just seems like the coolest thing. I I don't even know where to begin because there's so many <laughs> ways that we could approach this. But let's just start with why would a winery have a shepherd? You, well, tell tell us who you are, where you work, and and uh, and then why would there be a shepherd at at that place? Okay, um, my name is Nathan Stewart. Um, I work at Tablas Creek. Um, and I am their in-house shepherd, as you mentioned. Um, and Tablas Creek has a shepherd because um, they're an amazing company. They uh, are very, <laughs> very forward thinking, even though shepherding sounds like backwards thinking. Um, they, this company, since the very beginning, it's has been transparent and has... They've, they've just never really changed. And at the very start, when they got their investors, the investment plan was like, we're not going to make any money and neither are our kids, but our grandkids are going to have something that is um, made the land better and done something really special. And so it was a really, really foolish investment idea. <laughs> um, but these people just made an amazing decision to do something anyways um, trying to create a Rhone style wine and prove that it could be done in California and didn't cut any corners, even made things yeah. longer than they had to be um, because of their standards. And leaving things better than when we got here has always been at the core of, of their value and, and our value. And so uh, they, they started farming biodynamic uh, a couple of years ago. They've always been organic. 
And as part of being biodynamic, you have an animal element to that. You have to create your own fertilizer on site. Um, most people that are running biodynamic are, you know, they have like a petting zoo and that's kind of what Tabo's Creek had for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And at one point they just wanted to, to ramp that up into something more, um, uh, just more effective and more powerful. And right now our sheep program is, um, you know, it's one of the major tools on the property next to the tractors and the crews and, um, other things that we use to get jobs done, the sheep are right in there and um, it's working out really well. They, so why, why sheep make things better? Sheep make things better because if you go back to, you kind of have to like deconstruct the whole concept of everything. Um, all plants evolved with herbivores and we took herbivores out of the equation um, in the industrial revolution, basically. And it was too complicated to be hauling around sacks of manure. And it was much easier when they presented us with MPK, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus after World War II, which was used for, uh, it was actually invented by Nazi uh, scientists. And we took that information after World War II and started using that in our um, agricultural industries. Um, and we were able to give the illusion of fertile soil while we were actually killing all the microorganisms in the soil. Now it goes the opposite direction when you put livestock back on the soil. Um, they bring diversity, they're fertilizing the soil, they're enriching the lives of the microorganisms, making everything um, go faster and um, just building soil. So that the reason Talbot's Creek has a shepherd in short is because they care about the soil and they want this place to be more diverse and more sustainable. That was, yeah. that was the long answer. And I gave you the short answer. <laughs> I, I want to jump into so many things you, I mean, the, the idea of these grazing herds and the fact that the, the grasslands and, and the flora adapted and evolved together with those, with the fauna Right is really profound. I mean, that's something that for the longest time, right? We've we've thought that grazing, you know, grazing animals on land would degrade the land, and now we're mm -hmm. realizing it's because we were doing it wrong. Um, right. And you you have, I've heard you actually talk about the buffalo herds and how you're trying to sort of replicate that, you know, the model that they did. Can you talk a little bit more yeah, in, about that? That's totally stolen from um, Alan Savory. Alan Savory, right? Yeah, and if you haven't seen um, the TED Talk on desertification, it, it changed my life. And if it doesn't change your life, it should at least give you goosebumps. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the, the the concept is there's nothing wrong with livestock. Obviously, if um, livestock were creating global warming, they would have done it back when we had millions of buffaloes in the United States. Um, the United States cattle herd is smaller than it's been in 75 years. Um, but those cows are producing more damaging gases than we've ever seen in history. Um, so it's not the cow's fault. Cows are just cows. <laughs> the, it's the fault of the managers of the livestock, how we're managing these animals um, and how we've changed the way they live from their natural environment. That's the problem. That in, in that lies the, the key to either you know, creating or destroying. Um, if you can go back and imagine 
America before we got here. And there's there's um, an old uh, pioneer in one of it's like a it's like his journal, and he's writing about coming over this mountain range in the Midwest. And he can see for 20 miles out across this valley and he can't see the ground between the backs of buffaloes. So 20 miles of just nothing but buffaloes. And to me, all I can imagine is the millions of tons of manure being dropped (laughs) on the ground, all the old buffaloes that are dying, um, the young buffalo are staying at the front. And with a herd of that size, the, the animals at the back of the herd are literally starving to death because the front of the herd is eating all the food in front of them. Mm. Right. So you have a mineral cycle, nutrients and meat and all this organic matter traveling across the surface of the ground. And it's breaking down much faster than you would see in a, you know, what we would consider a normal situation. Then you have the, the herbivores at the back of the herd chasing the the young ones that are weak or the old ones that are dying from age or starvation the you that the whole, carnivores yeah the, what did i say herbivores yeah yeah uh, yeah i did so yeah the carnivores so you got wolves and um other predators moving the herd the herd can't stay in one place for a couple reasons within 24 hours there's no food where they are and they're um they're defecating and pissing all over the ground where they are as well. So they're constantly having to move on to fresh ground. So many lessons to be learned. If you stay in one place too long, you get a huge parasite buildup. So <laughs> what do we do? We put chemicals into our animals to kill those parasites. Um, not a good thing, right? Right. Uh, in the natural world, what the animals would do is they would just keep moving on to fresh grass. So that's what we're doing also. If an animal has a choice, if you put one animal on an acre of grass, that animal will go out and eat its favorite grass, just like we would. You go out right. and eat favorite um, from that acre. Then the next thing you eat is whatever's left, and you go on down to the thing you absolutely hate. Within five <laughs> years, that pasture will only be what you hate because that's right. what you're allowed to seed out. So all these problems is why we've designed the holistic management system and why we graze the sheep the way we do. We, we keep them in high concentrations. So we're talking 250 sheep on no more than two acres, and they're never there for more than two days. Um, the, the parasite cycle in the life of an animal is about 30 days. So they don't go back onto a pasture where they've been for at least 60. So that right. kills that whole cycle of the parasites coming up on the grass them being eaten and then eggs being laid in the stomach and going out in the manure. And then it multiplies by the thousands as soon as it goes right. back out in the manure. Um, so, so that we way really, you, you sorry, keep again? the sheep healthy. Yeah, so you're keeping the sheep healthy by moving them around. Yeah. We're keeping the sheep healthy by letting them without do what using, they would do. Yeah. Without using chemistry and yeah. antibiotics and things yeah. like that. So w- there's no, there's nothing like you, you ask what is, you know, like, what do we feed or what do we put in a Tablas Creek lamb? Just the grass. <laughs> That's all they eat. <laughs> the um, cover crop, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the cover crop. Um, the, we give them, we give them seaweed, which is locally harvested um, because there's a, there's like highest concentrations of minerals and nutrients found in any plant. And so that's just mm-hmm. kind of our, our supplement for them to make sure they're getting a balanced diet. Um, nice. And uh 
So yeah, so that's that's what we do. High concentration, make sure that all the plants get grazed evenly, whether they like it or not. They feel the pressure that in 24 hours, there's not going to be any food, so don't be looking around too much. And it changes how they move and how they act. And it's incredible how many different things you can do with how you manage animals that changes how they react to the situation. Um, so moving them a lot and keeping them in high concentrations is what uh, and that's kind of that whole concept of mimicking nature, mimicking the buffaloes. Uh, right. And the buffalo is the reason why we have the Corn Belt. That's why there's so much amazing soil in the middle of the United States that was created by however many years of um, buffalo traveling across that year after year after year. So, I've heard the phrase mob grazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think mob is an acronym, right? Um, or is it? You know, or is my, it literally a mob? I, I think it, I think it's literally a mob, but I, I bet okay. it's an acronym that I never was listening well enough in the class. But um, I'll look it up. It got talked about a lot in a lot of classes I've been in. So if I missed it and it's an acronym, it's going to be hilarious. Um, mob grazing is just an even more concentrated version of that. So you're now moving them every hour uh, or every four hours instead of every uh, one or two days, three days. Um, okay. it's kind of splitting hairs. You're getting into, um, most it, the climate you're in and how much rain you get can determine if you can do that or not. Since we're okay. in a pretty arid region, um, we found that, you, you know, every single property is different. And, um, I never try to tell anybody on their property how they should manage it, but we found that this amount of days works for us. And, um, we don't get the kind of regrowth in the summer that, you know, maybe they get in Virginia or something like that, where they could do something more like a mob grazing. Right. No, um, well, oh, since that guy, Joe, Joe Salatin does a, a lot of mob grazing uh, yeah. style stuff. Uh, with cattle. Is Polyface, is that Polyface mm-hmm. Farms? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, since you brought it up, I mean, we're, you know, now in December and it basically, has it rained in Paso Robles? Nothing that would grow grass, not yet. Right. So, yeah. so what what's happening? I mean, they, you know, I'm sure the grass was long since gone by July, even. And mm-hmm. what happens between now and you know then and December for the animals? So let's see. Um, I would say we ran. What we do is we graze them all summer long while, during the growing season in the vineyard. Sorry about that. In the, in the growing season, when the vines are all green, we keep the sheep out of the vineyard and we have about 150, 160 acres of woodlands that we graze them in. Works out mm-hmm. great because we're doing a lot of fire prevention around the vineyard and right. it's got a bunch, it's an oak forest, so it's shaded. So when it gets 110 out there, they have a nice spot in the shade. Now, um, soon as harvest is finished, the day they pull the last scrapes off the vines, I move the sheep into the vineyard. There's not a lot of feed on the ground because the vineyard hasn't, you know, been growing grass since May, and right. all that was mowed. Um, but they, there's green leaves on the vines, and what we've basically decided is we can supplement feed them, which we'll we'll buy organic alfalfa to feed them when there's no feed in the vineyard. But all that material, which is, you know, we bought 50,000, 24 tons. Yeah, 50,000 plus pounds of alfalfa to feed the sheep over this interim between 
the the grass running out and the grass starting to grow again right. all that material gets broken down in the sheep and turned into compost in the vineyard right um, and so even now even though we don't have grass and we're having to feed them we're still dropping you know, two to four hundred pounds of manure every day in these blocks in the vineyard right now once the grass starts growing in the vineyard obviously we'll you know we don't have to feed them anymore so we'll probably probably at least two months away from grass um yeah and unfortunately that's it, about that it's a they bad year yeah so it'll it'll rain over the next month but it'll be too cold to grow grass on the central coast uh, the old timers say it takes a hundred degree day which means you add the high and the low together and when it gets to 100 that'll start growing grass so 60 40. um so that won't happen for a month and then it'll start but won't barely be anything for another month and then come march it'll just take off and we'll grow three four feet of grass in eight weeks you know the problem is come march 15th i gotta pull the sheep out of the vineyard because we got bud break starting. So when it doesn't rain early in the fall, it really shortens my window um, of effective grazing in the vineyard. And that's why a couple of years ago, we just decided, okay, well, whether the grass grows or not, and we have to supplement feed them, we'll do that, but we'll do it in the vineyard. So at least we're getting the the benefit of them. It's great. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, some years we barely have to buy any feed. If it, you know, if it rains in October, November, we're doing great. But, uh, you know, California, it's heating up, and it seems like uh, there's been a lot more and more winters like this. So, yeah. well, um, yeah, and to bring that that loop that full circle, that's what the buffalo were doing is what you're doing in the for the vines, right? So you're essentially creating this beautiful, rich soil that the vines can grow in to make beautiful, delicious wine. Um, yeah, and I, I mean. So, you know, I'll just say Tablas Creek, uh, for anybody that doesn't know, in Paso Robles is, you know, one of the great wineries of America, like in so many ways, no expense spared. Um, I actually grow a, a front yard vineyard uh, that is a Syrah clone um, from from the parent that uh, that they brought over, that Tablas Creek, the Tablas Creek parent clone of Syrah. Um, awesome. Yeah. And... Uh, but before you know, going into that, I I, I am friends with a, a couple who have two twin girls who are almost eleven. Uh, one of them actually designed one of our labels. They're like, they're both amazing artists, very bright, amazing, curious girls. When they found out uh, I would be talking to a shepherd today, <laughs> they had a couple questions. So okay, I'm ready. Um, uh, questions to ask the shepherd. Um, <laughs> So I'll, I'll, I'll won't do these in order. And they also let me know that I could ask some of my own questions, you know, that I didn't just have to, that was great. I wasn't limited to just these seven questions. Okay. (laughs) But I'll ask the the ones that you can answer probably briefly. Uh, first, how many sheep do you have? You said 250. Is that right? Yeah. Right now we're right about 250. I I guess we're probably getting close to 300 because of lambing. So, we have 130 ewes that all get pregnant every year, and then they have about 150% reproductive rate. So that means every other one will have twins, roughly. And um, so we designed our lambing program to have them born in the fall so that my herd is as big as it could ever be in the year um, when the grass is the most available. 
So our herd will swell all the way up to almost 300 and then drop back down to 120, 130 when the grass runs out in, you know, when it stops growing end of May. So so it kind of swells and shrinks. So we'll harvest a bunch of lamb at the end of spring that will, you know, source to local restaurants. And that brings me down to a manageable size to go to kind of um, make it through the summer until next winter again. Okay, so interesting. So the the two fifty is that an is that boys and girls? <laughs> that's, that's everybody. So what is a, what is a male sheep called? Okay, so there's a couple things. So you've got um you've got a a ram. You've got a ram which is a male that's intact. <laughs> then you have okay. a leather which is a male that's not intact. What was that again? Uh, a leather. W e t h e r. Weather. Okay. Weather. Yeah. Um, and then a ewe is a female um, sheep. So there's ewe lambs and um, weather lambs and ram lambs. And yeah. then uh, a lamb is before a year old. After a year, it's called a yearling. And then it's just either, you know, One of a ewe or a weather or a ram. And something to keep in mind, if you are eating lamb from Colorado... Well, if you're eating lamb in a restaurant in California from Colorado, you're not eating lamb. Um, the the general, and there's always, I'm sure there's somebody out there doing an amazing job producing something, but I would say generally speaking, um, most of the lamb that comes out of Colorado comes from feedlots, just like um, the California Valley. And mm. if you understand that the, the shepherd pays the same price to kill and process an animal that weighs 120 pounds as a lamb that weighs an animal that weighs 80 pounds, it's just not viable to harvest lamb. So most people will harvest their animals when they get closer to 120 because they make that much more money per animal and it costs a fixed amount to kill it, process it. And is that we've made say again at that point? Would it be a yearling at that weight or would it it would be a yearling? Okay. Yeah. So it's not mutton. Mutton would be a you know over two years, um, but we've we've decided we wanted to sell real lamb, and so all of our lambs get harvested at right around eighty pounds. So we take a you know twenty to thirty pound cut in what we get um, back when we harvest, but it's real lamb that was still on its mother's milk, and um, it's amazing. It's pretty incredible wow. stuff. So okay. Um, so- um, that was, so that turned out to be a really good question. Ava wrote these questions down. Um, Elise is the other, is her sister. Okay. <laughs> um, the other, I guess my follow up to that is, is sheep, are sheep the only animals that you, uh, shepherd? Yes. There? Um, well, um, so we've got guard dogs. We've got two beautiful Spanish mastiffs that I believe one is pregnant this year, which we've been waiting for a long time for that to happen. So pretty excited about that. How big are those dogs? Very big, 140, 150 pounds. Um, <laughs> one of them's taller than me if it stands <laughs> up. And um, and I'm 6'3", so they're very big wow. dogs. Um, we had a huge problem with predation from coyotes, mountain lions, even golden eagles uh, over the first couple of years of the program. And... Um, we tried donkeys, we tried llamas, we tried alpacas, 
and nothing really slowed it down until we got these dogs and these dogs have completely stopped um any loss from uh predators and some amazing that everybody should support this concept is you know when you have livestock guardian animals like dogs donkeys alpacas what's awesome about that is you you completely take out nobody dies you, you're not poisoning you're not trapping any predators the predators just don't come near because they're not comfortable around these guardian animals and right. uh, so it keeps my sheep alive it keeps the mountain lions alive it keeps everybody happy and separate that's <laughs> um, great so yeah and, the, and they they just live with the sheep right like they sort of become part time, of the herd full-time they've yeah. got a dog house that moves with the herd and um they're really quiet and very passive in the day but even if i go to feed them at dusk it's a totally different animal they i really have to make sure they know who i am before i get in the pen with them wow um, why why aren't the sheep afraid of them they have a they don't act like a typical dog it's pretty incredible i i've i run border collies to move the sheep and the sheep can't stand even the sight of a border collie but when i brought these these Spanish Mastiffs into the herd within like 10 minutes, they were like laying down with the sheep. They just, um, they're very, very submissive to the sheep. And so I think the sheep feel safe around them that way. And something about the breeds, the Spanish Mastiffs, the Akbosh, the um, Anatolians, Maremas, these are all just different strains of the same Eastern European dogs. Um, They just bond with whatever they're living with and become very protective of it. So whether it's your kids, your chickens, your ducks, your sheep, um, they, they, they'll put their life on the line for, for that thing. It's pretty amazing. Wow. Training. So that's very cool. You can get good dogs and you get bad dogs. We got, we got good dogs this time. So that's great. (laughs) Um, all right. Another question from Ava, where are your sheep from? Okay. that's That's a good question. So, um, uh, our sheep are a breed of called Dorpers. That was, that's the, um, yeah, the breed. And we cross them with New Mexican doll sheep. So Dorpers is a cross between a Dorset Ram and a Persian Blackhead. And they were developed, I think, in the 60s or 70s in South Africa. I think I got all that right. Um, the New Mexican doll sheep is the oldest sheep known to exist in the United States. It was brought over by the Spaniards and got lost in the desert in New Mexico. And the cowboys were bringing in cattle and every year they would bring in the cattle and there'd be like two or three of these random sheep. And somebody decided to check the genetics and they uh, separated out and, and saved an old, um, old herd, old breed. Um, we, we crossed with them because we wanted their resistance to parasites. They're just a really hardy animal because they've been wild for 500 years. Um, so they're a little more flighty, a little more leggy. So cross with the Dorper is kind of a good combination that they, they have the thickness of the Dorper, which is a great meat animal. Um, but they have the hardiness of a, of a more wild animal. Um, and the, the Dorper bloodline we've been, so I've been running sheep in the Adelaides in West Paso since 2011. So those genetics, I I was uh, working at another ranch, um, Rangeland Wines, before I was at Tablas Creek. And so I brought those genetics over to Tablas Creek with me when I moved. And so those genetics have carried on now for um, eight years, nine years. 
Um, so that's that's been kind of exciting because the longer an animal spends in one place, the the more they evolve to that place. Um, and by that I mean the the ones that were meant to be here that can handle the environment, that can handle the kind of food they get and the um, the the climate they do well and survive and the ones that don't don't so every year right. the herd gets stronger and just better at being here um that's so that's been cool to watch the the babies get fatter sooner everybody just keeps their weight on better that's pretty neat to see evolution playing out in front of you that's very cool yeah, yeah. um okay do you know any other shepherds i do i do um alex and his wife with uh outlaw is it outlaw ranch they're in a tascadero they're amazing okay. um they they raise churro sheep Let's see nice. outlaw is, is, yeah is there... outlaw valley ranch um they uh yeah they're, they're they're owners and operators of their own ranch young couple and they're doing pretty awesome stuff with churro sheep which is another very old native american herd um very cool and then uh robert Irwin and his wife up in lake county I think they grazed 11,000 acres of vineyard last year. Um, they are doing what I'm doing on a big scale with Robert Mondavi Vineyards and all sorts of stuff in Sonoma County. Those guys are chaos sheep company, pretty amazing people. And then Kelly Mulville out in um, at Picenis Ranch up near Hollister. They're doing some awesome stuff with sheep and vineyards. All those people you can... Um, get a hold of and they'll be really wonderful and very helpful if you're interested in running sheep in your vineyard. Yeah. Um, here's a question for me. I actually wanted to interview be, you because, uh, I mean, for many reasons, because I think, you know, what you do, I, I believe is so integral to wine. Um, and, and as yet mostly overlooked, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, but also because I just think, I would love being a shepherd. And so I'm very jealous of you. <laughs> and so my, my question is, should I be jealous? Like what, you know, and this ties into one of Ava's questions, which is what is your daily life? Like what are the, re what's the reality of being a shepherd? And, and is it something I should be jealous of? Um, it's been a lot of things over the years right now. It's pretty posh. Um, I, <laughs> I, I've got an amazing crew of guys that help me. So, I usually don't have to work that hard, honestly. So I do a lot of um, coordinating with the restaurants and doing sales on the meat and um, doing stuff like this podcast or back when we were doing conferences, going to conferences and talking and stuff like that. Um, I'm also the videographer at Tabas Creek, so I do a lot of video work. So I just totally blew my romantic image out of the water. Uh, for, for years, sleeping out under the stars with the yeah, staff and... with the staff yeah um we do use the staff during lambing a lot um uh -huh. to catch All lambs right. and uh, the we have I've, I've done day grazing in the past where you're literally on horseback or with the dogs moving the sheep around without fencing um right so i've done that for months on end um, but we don't really need to do that in the situation at Tabas Creek. So we haven't done that much of that. Um, I think the beautiful side of it is anytime you set up a, a pasture with electric net fencing, which you know, we'll do a couple times a week and move, you know, moving the sheep into a new paddock and seeing them all move out onto fresh pasture 
and then seeing how well you did at timing when we moved them off um, so that where they were is left per- perfectly, you know, mowed, but right. not overgrazed or damaged. Um, I, I always tell people sheep are just another tool so they can damage things just like tractors can. So if you don't manage them wrong, it, like they're not, they're not just an automatic benefit to the vineyard, you know? Right. Right. Um, so that's probably one of my favorite things. Lambing is always really exciting, but it's also um, it's bittersweet because there's a lot of death involved in lambing. Um, when you have 130 animals having babies, there's always going to be some um, complications. So, um, so uh, most days it's a lot of like helping things come into this world and be alive. And that's really, really addicting. But some days, like if we have a really bad storm, we can lose several lambs in one night and um, fighting that and going to bed, worrying about uh, if you did everything you could to make sure that your animals are safe and healthy is um, that can be pretty exhausting mentally and emotionally. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. I say the, the good side is definitely, yeah, the good side is the life part of it and the magic of life. And the bad side of it is the opposite of that. <laughs> You're dealing with that many alive things and they uh, can drop like goldfish. Sometimes it can be a little bit hard. Mm, yeah. So. Yeah. No, I've, uh, I've cared for chickens for the last, I don't know, several years. And yeah, they're very similar in that yeah. sense. Like yeah. if, you have, if you have more it, than one, you're going to lose. <laughs> and Yeah. You're going to lose some at some gonna point. Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. And it's, I've learned, I think there's a really fine line um, and this is going to get too sappy for the average cowboy or cowgirl, but it's um, I feel like when you're dealing with livestock, you deal with a lot of death. And sometimes what people do is they just get kind of calloused and hard and they'll joke about it, but it's almost to like hide the fact that like nobody likes to have to put things out of their misery or deal with things that are in pain, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so trying to keep an open heart and be sensitive to the stuff, you know, and still functioning is a, is a tricky balance because it's important to be very much aware of um, any suffering, any animal that's under your care is experiencing, but at the same time, it can be very overwhelming doing that too. So I think a lot of people just check out. So trying not to check out is a challenge. Yeah. I think I, I love that. Yeah. I, I mean, and you seem like, um, I mean, from what little I, I know from just, you know, trying to glean some, some of your history, you seem like a, a pretty free spirited person who probably has a, a, a deep connection to, to, to the animals in some way, in many ways. Um, I mean, I, I, I wonder about that soulful part and maybe does that tie into how you became a shepherd and you know, how that, how, I mean, is there a moment that you decided this is what you wanted to do or was it a series of events that, that led you to this? I, I don't know. It was kind of a weird road. Um, I mean, as a kid, I always wanted to be a cowboy, but I didn't, I wasn't born on a ranch and uh, growing up on the central coast, it was always rural and we rode horses and played around, but I still didn't own a ranch. <laughs> and uh, so at some point I gave up on that idea and I mean, it's a long story. I ended up in Mexico and I was in the, working in the wine industry in Mexico and what really got me into the sheep was um, Casa de Piedra in, in Mexico. Hugo da Costa is the winemaker, and he's kind of the Robert Mondavi of Baja wines. Um, he had a vineyard at Casa de Piedra. I think it was Chardonnay. Is that and, the, the, like the 500-year-old 
no, no, that's Santo Tomas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got um, it. Okay. But uh, Ugo did work for Santo Tomas originally as their enologist years and years ago. Okay. Um, so he had the whole vineyard set up to where it was super narrow rows and the vines were really close together to create competition between the vines so that the root systems would be kind of um, keeping the vigor down on the plants. Mm-hmm. But that meant you couldn't get a tractor in there. So right. everything was hand hoed. And I got hired on and it. I think it was kind of like, let's see if the gringo can survive this. And so the first thing season I got put on just hoeing with the hoeing crew oh and God. we would finish. It was only a couple acres, but we would finish it. And by the time we finished it, we'd have to start over because the crabgrass had come back. Wow. Um, and it was just insane. It was just an insane labor task that seemed ridiculous to me yeah and um i got lost on youtube like we all do and somehow i i think i first found a vineyard up in canada that was running sheep in their vineyard for leaf thinning and um and grazing under the vines and i was like oh my god these vines are narrow we can't get the tractor in we could get sheep it and then i ran into kelly uh kelly mulville i almost said kelly slater <laughs> ran into kelly mulville online and he had gotten an article in sommelier weekly or sommelier something magazine and it it was talking all about this vineyard and the study that they did uh where they ran sheep parallel to a block where they didn't run sheep and the numbers he was bringing back were unbelievable it was you know an extra two tons to the acre in yields 50 percent less water used on and on and on and on like a savings of like 500 per acre um, all the, all the stuff. And so right. I called up Kelly and that was, uh, I called up Kelly 12, 13, maybe 14 years ago now. Uh-huh. Um, and started talking to him from Mexico, just got obsessed with the idea of sheep and vineyards. I just thought it was such a win, win, win concept. And there's so many things now you find the more you work with nature, a lot of these concepts become very win, 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 because that's how nature was put together <laughs> to be right. beneficial to everything and let everything survive as opposed to, you know, the industrial revolution, which was not about that at all. Um, so he got me. Well, so, Go ahead. I mean, it's, I, I yeah, I'm just going to interject to say it sounds like this all started because the lazy gringo was trying to get out of the hard labor. Uh, absolutely. And that, <laughs> that hasn't changed. It's still the case today. <laughs> the, um, Sorry. Yeah, that's true. And thank you for making that point. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like I last year, or the year before, I don't know, before COVID shut down, like I, um, me and Kelly put on a conference together or a seminar on grazing sheep and vineyards. And I've um, co like I've been on panels with him. It's been really fun for me because like he was my mentor that got me into it. And every time I'm doing anything with him, I'm just excited. Um, he continues to be pushing the envelope on uh, ways to develop vineyards so that they're ready for sheep from the get-go, um, yeah, that's, which that's in crazy. my opinion is the future of the wine industry. It'll save them billions of dollars annually um, in weed maintenance. The it, it hasn't taken off like I wish it would, but uh, if you're interested in planting a vineyard and you want to run sheep, you need to call Kelly Mulville up at Piscini's Ranch. He's got a 30 acre vineyard that's designed to run sheep all year and it's never been disked and it's amazing in my opinion. So that's incredible. 
yeah um so he's he's still you know he continues to push the envelope and working with him has been great tablet we've started a a trial block at tablas creek to test um different um trellis structure systems so that we could run the sheep after bud break because that's the big that's the big downfall of this whole idea is it's all it all sounds great like oh you're just going to bring the sheep in and they're going to make the whole vineyard look like a golf course yes until march 15th and then the grass starts growing (laughs) (laughs) so from march 15th to the end of may if i could graze in the vineyard without damaging buds it would change everything the tractors wouldn't turn on we would save thousands and thousands of dollars in diesel fuel and we would have way less carbon going into the atmosphere way less compaction in the vineyard Uh, the the list just goes on and on and on of all the benefits that that would cause you know i bring the benefit basically of fertilizing the vineyard um whenever i can be in there but come bud break it's just too much of a liability that's uh that's the crop for the year so. so i imagine the main design change would be raising the fruiting canes up to a certain level where the sheep wouldn't reach it. Yeah, it seems like it depends on the breed, but it seems like somewhere around 55 inches um, is the browse line for my sheep. So if I am above 55 inches, then I'm I'm safe. The They don't eat the berries when they're green. So before veraison, I'm fine. Um, because if you've ever eaten a berry before it was, when it was still green, you, you would never do <laughs> it again. And they feel the same way. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's the future. I hope, I, I don't care who takes that idea. I think everybody should run with it and um, yeah, that's... the best to the first person across that line because we need it for the planet. Um, so yeah, the, oh, I, yeah, yeah. You, go ahead. Did, do you want to? No, I just said the with no reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like my other, um, <laughs> Wild animals. Uh, so obviously you got the domestic animals, but let's talk about what are the benefits of, or what kind of wild animals do you have to deal with? And how do you, you know, what is the, do you in any way, you know, quote unquote, manage them and how so, and, and or what, what benefits or, or otherwise do they bring to the? Well, um, just the presence of sheep on land, do a couple things. Well, depending on how they're managed, but the way we're managing them is beneficial to perennial grasses, which is the native grasses of California. Um, and that's all you can geek out on that for days. Um, yeah. Think that the whole scenery around here was totally different. It wasn't these rolling green Hills. It was all rolling golden Hills. It was all bunch grasses that were super drought tolerant and um, didn't need as much rain because even though, global warming is happening now california has always had droughts and the plants that are from here are used to droughts the plants that are not from here which is all the grasses on all the hills which is all european seeds um, don't do well at all in this setting Mm. so when you start grazing land in the way it's supposed to be grazed how it was grazed before those plants just naturally start popping up and as those plants start popping up the native animals like the deer and the elk, they start following your herd because they remember that plant somehow. And like that, like, like gives me goosebumps. 
Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So they start realizing that the, the food that they were literally genetically designed to eat starts coming up after these sheep come through. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. So that I've, I've seen that happen in other places. We don't have elk here, but, um, but the deer come through and we'll follow the sheep and around here. But, uh, I've got friends running cattle up North and they've had the same thing happen with elk. And that's pretty cool. That's Um, amazing. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we're, we're not using any chemicals because we're grazing sheep. So there's no insects getting killed in our vineyard at all. Um, Mm. but we're able to graze down the cover crop low enough. So we'll, we'll focus in the early spring on areas that are low sitting where we could probably have frost damage and we'll graze that before we could ever get a tractor in there because it's too wet. And that, that helps prevent, um, frost damage on the plants because the frost, the cold air will literally sit on top of a cover crop. And so having it grazed down to a couple inches off the ground gives us that extra foot maybe of not freezing the vines. Hmm. Um, so being strategic with them there, that, so, that, I, so I back to animals, I guess. Yeah. So the insects, got a lot of insects. Um, we, we plant a lot of beneficial plants to for insects to bring more and more insects onto the property. Um, otherwise... Yeah. What about oh, like all of our all of our birds in in the vineyard um, build all of their nests with wool? <laughs> all of them, all of them. Every that's, nest has wool in it on Tabos Creek. Um, that's hilarious. Do they come down and steal it right off the lambs, or do they just pull it out of? No, the sheep the walk under. Again? They walk under the vines and they leave wool right. all the the catch wires in the um, on the irrigation line. So I I I, I keep. I always joked like that's probably going to make something instinct at some point because we introduced the sheep. Like there's, these, it's <laughs> right, like, right. it's like the, the, the certain bird is going to like have a way better survival rate because now it has wool in its nest, which is 20% less cold when wet. And, and they're going to have more babies and it's going to wipe out some important insects. Hopefully not. <laughs> it's, it's true. We don't oh, know yeah. what we're dabbling with when it comes to nature. So there's always a chance that, uh, <laughs> never think to know what you're doing <laughs> that's amazing well and you guys don't use bird nets right no we don't use bird nets um, which is insane i mean some people would think that's insane like what can you what's the rationale what do you what do you how do you manage that i think or do it's you just, just change your philosophy about i think the philosophy is like they were here too they, they they've never wiped us out i mean there's probably a 10 15 loss to birds every year um that that's so classic like farmer mentality though like there's a problem and it's a percentage of profit and i need to fix it at all costs half the time the process to fix it costs more than what you're losing <laughs> and that, you know the um cover crops definitely have their place and their value in so many situations but a lot of time you're getting sold a seed that will basically be the same seed that grows naturally on your property. So let's go right. buy a bunch of mustard seed and plant that when if you would just stop doing anything, mustard grows pretty well in California and it's in the ground. <laughs> um, so so you're like, well, oh, but this is this mustard is, I don't know, genetically modified to give you 20% more uh, nitrogen in the soil or whatever. I'm making stuff. Right, right. Uh, yeah. The 
okay, 20%, how much is 20% really worth? And how much did you just spend when you bought a whole pallet of mustard seed, had to prep your soil with a tractor? So in our case, 120 acres has to be prepped and then another 120 acres has to be seeded. And you get all that done. You're like, how much did that cost me? And how much was that 20% really worth? You know, right. Uh, so a lot of times I think we try to fix things when we don't need to fix things. And um, I think that the bird netting is just another one of those things where we're like, you know what, this is, we're buying netting. It's all plastic. We're rolling right. it out. It takes our guys, you know, a week. How much does that cost us and how much do we really lose? So, right. Uh, and it sounds like that philosophy of sort of like letting nature do its thing is it it sounds like you're at the right place for that. I mean, that sounds like oh, the driving philosophy there. At there's Creek. some, there's yeah. Tabos Creek. This team is so amazing at that stuff there. Um, you know, there's a lot of amazing people out there that want to do amazing stuff, but don't have the financial backing and Tabos Creek has put the, you know, put their money where their mouth is and it's paid off for them. Um, so that's just great that uh, they let us do stuff and, um, you know, it doesn't always work. We fail all the time. Um, we don't make videos about the stuff we fail at, but <laughs> the, but yeah, it's a, it's a learning process, but the fact that they allow us to learn creates this environment where we we're constantly growing. And so that's incredible. Um, that's great. we've just got obsessed with biochar. It's all we can talk about now. So we're getting into, you know, building our own kiln and on and on. Um, have you seen so. that documentary? Um, God, the one that is narrated by, oh gosh, Kiss I can never remember. Say that again. Kiss the ground. No, not Woody Harrelson. It's the one. Uh, it's a female actor, um, and it wasn't like on Netflix. It was something else. It was. Ugh. Anyway, there is a energy facility oh, that one that burned down. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh my that God. One. That was incredible and kind of right? scary. Yeah. yeah. The, the use of like the methane caused by the, the swamp conditions, the greenhouse yeah. channeling back to incredible. funnel the biochar producer and the, Oh my God. I mean, like that was just power and feed a whole city block kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The technology's yeah. there. We've got it. Like we just basically, we just got to beat the big um, corporations because we can do it. Um, yeah. There's already people out there with the science that know how to make this completely sustainable. We just got to stop spending money on things that aren't sustainable. Um, yep. That's so the what only about thing that matters is our our spending dollar, how we vote with it. That's yeah. That's, that's the make or break. We live in a capitalist country. It's all about the money. So don't try to change that. Just keep it about the money. Just start spending it in the right direction. Even though I just said I spend money on Amazon, so I'm a total hypocrite. <laughs> No, I, I mean, and, and we all are. I think it's like doing what you can. I mean, it shouldn't demoralize anybody to know that you have to make compromises. Don't be overwhelmed by the guilt of that. I mean, that's Absolutely, just yeah. part of being human, but keep making the good choices that you can make where you can yeah. make them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, trying to encourage myself as well as everybody else. We, we can, we can do this. Yeah. We don't really have a choice anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the kind of wine you buy is is a big one. You know, like buying Topless Creek wine is obviously supporting something that is wonderful and beautiful and pro life <laughs> in the best sense. And uh, you know, 
And you're yeah, thinking, and, like, you know, in like in Tabo's Creek's case or in any other organic uh, biodynamic operation, your your dollar is going not to just a company. It's going to, in Tabo's Creek's case, 260 acres of land that is going to be managed differently because of your dollar. Like right. you're affecting large pieces of land. It's all agriculture. How we spend money on agriculture is going to be the quickest way to change things because yep. so much land is affected by simple decisions like, okay, we're going to spray this 1000 acres with Roundup. That's yep. devastating, you know, or we're not yep. going to spray it with Roundup and we're going to run livestock on it instead. That is super powerful. Um, yeah. The carbon that gets put down into the ground from a decision like that is, you know, megatons over the next 20 years. That's really cool. So, yeah. Well, since, I mean, along this topic, let's talk about Talus Creek is, was the first winery to get regenerative organic certified, um, which is a, a new certification that's come out. Uh, you know, using, building on organic certification, biodynamic certification, as well as animal welfare um, and sustainable practices. What was, what was your role uh, in that since you were the shepherd? And I know animal welfare is part of that. What, what is that like? What, what are the kind of metrics do they look at? And, and what, yeah, how did you play into that certification process? The, I'm trying to think, we were already working we're already working with the greener world with um animal welfare approved or it was at the same time and and we already had ccof certification so um there wasn't a lot of change changes for us as far as um how our program was ran i, I think there's a couple little changes that we made but the how the roc works is it's a you know, three-part certification and those are all third party companies that come in and do that. So ROC doesn't do any, well, they do their own audit, but you also get audited by the three um, kind of, you know, stool legs of the the certification. So we get audited by a company for um, fair trade, the, the social aspect of it, we be, get audited by a company for the soil health, and then we get audited by a company for the animal welfare, and then we get audited by ROC for the whole thing. Got it. Um, and by so i mean this it was pretty it was pretty simple they're great to work with they're um since they're new and they're working closely with patagonia they uh and and bronner uh who, who's been farming amazingly for years now um they were pretty sensitive to the farmer and really open to hearing what's realistic and what's not realistic and um and some of the loopholes that we've seen other certifications go through where, you know, I mean, like the organic certification has destroyed so much topsoil in America. It's ridiculous because uh, it just says you can't use chemicals. It doesn't say you can't disc your soil wow. in the ocean. Yeah. So right. a lot of big companies don't own land for organic farming. They lease it because they know in five years it'll be played out. Wow. And, um, and that's, what organic certification brought us, you know, there's, because the, the root of the problem isn't the fact that, you know, some people want organic. It's the fact that the big corporations are always just going to be trying to make a buck. So until right. the best way to make a buck is doing it right, it's just going to, somebody's going to find a loophole, you know? Right. Um, so this, the ROC certification was designed to hopefully get rid of some loopholes and, um, that's that's really exciting. The, the most exciting thing for me on the ROC certification was 
really head up by Jordy Longborg, our viticulturist, because he has really, really, really been um, championing our our um, our labor force, all, all the Mexican guys that work in the vineyard with us, and has worked hard to make sure they're you know getting fair wage and and things like that. And I can't believe in this day and age the entire wine industry, there is no fair trade system set up at all in any winery. Yeah. And yeah. the loophole is, well, they're all, they're, none of them are employees. It's through a labor contract company because all of them are illegal. So right. that was a big challenge. And we had to work with um, the fair trade certifiers because they'd never done anything like this. And um, with ROC, and it was, it was quite a process to try to figure out a way where we could provide a fair trade system when they aren't even our employee. And that's been really, really cool to watch, like tear jerking, cool to watch. Um, uh. Just the empowering of our employees. You know, they, we started having weekly board meetings where all the guys would come in in their muddy boots and sit down at the, the big fancy Tablas Creek board table and, um, and have the freedom to share like, Hey, like we hate this gopher trap. It doesn't work as good as this other gopher trap. And, um, it was like, there had to be a foundation built for them to be able to feel comfortable to share, even though we've never made them uncomfortable at sharing. It's just, there was some bridges that had to be crossed and some, a foundation that had to be set up. So they came out and did like a, a three day team building thing. And it was hilarious. I mean, everybody was involved and, and we're doing trust falls and all this hilarious stuff. And it was really good for the team and really, really good for the Mexicans. I think it was um, being somebody that lived in Mexico 12 years and speaks Spanish and I'm good friends with a lot of these guys, it's been really exciting to watch them, um, just be empowered. So that's very cool. I mean, on this podcast, I've more than once I've brought up the point that, you know, just in terms of a you know, if you just want to make a better wine, it just makes sense that the, the guys that work in your vineyards should also maybe have some process and some involvement with the end product like mm -hmm. the fact that people don't get to taste what they're doing in the vineyard seems like a huge disconnect that would if you if you made that connection quickly improve quality because they would you know that seeing that connection as the person growing the vines to what the wine is seems like oh you know it seems like lights would just go off and and that and just the involvement in the process there would stop being sort of like a classist separation between, you know, seller and vineyard. Yeah. And it's um, super beneficial to us as a company. I mean, they have locked in their exactly. is a wealth of knowledge. Nobody knows the vineyard better than these guys. So, and, and since we are a good company, a lot of these guys have been here 10, 15, 25, 30 years. So they've literally had their hands on every single vine a hundred times over the last couple of years. And so, to not use that information is just a waste of investment. Um, right. And it's, and I mean, start off this, uh, this year we decided, or last year we decided to change our whole pruning timing because the guys told us to, <laughs> they said, wow. you know, like, they're like at last year, you guys brought in another crew and we did it way faster, but we think we can do the whole vineyard if we start earlier and we changed up the program and they did it and it was great. And, they were proud of it because they knew that the whole program had been changed because of their suggestion. And mm. it was just cool. It was cool to and see. And they probably, 
they had greater ownership of of the work and the and the end result too because it right, didn't have right, to have right. some some outside help that's yeah. very cool so it's um i mean this harvest was a challenge with covid um was quite a challenge with covid but um but we've you know just through the whole thing been really supportive of the guys too if anybody's sick you know they get paid time off even though they aren't actually our employee uh stuff like mm-hmm. that has been really awesome the company really really takes care of their people so more more great reason to buy topless creek wine it really um, is i i <laughs> I'm I'm like a beer drinker myself, but you should buy Tabas Creek wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. I and so since we're talking about wine, is the wine any better because of all this stuff that you guys are doing? I think there's. Um, I mean, I, that that goes a lot to Neil and what happens um, in the cellar, which again is really hands off and letting things do what they're going to do. Um, none of our wines, absolutely none of our wines get meddled with, you know, there's no, um, changing of, uh, the amount of alcohol in the wine or spinning stuff out or adding in flavors or any of that, you know, and, um, using all native yeast and, uh, being really light on the Oak influence is pretty awesome. And, you know, Neil's philosophy has just been to, create a wine that reflects the place and everything we do. Um, and, and, hey, sorry, we got a new puppy in here. Um, everything we do in the farming, just uh, everything we do in the farm. Hold on. That's right. Puppy wrapped herself up in the cables behind the computer. Um, so yeah, what I was saying was Neil wanting everything to be, everything to reflect a place more. So if we're trying to give an honest reflection of Tablas Creek and what this microclimate creates, that means our farming has to be that too. So anything we can do, anything we can do to make the soil more natural. I mean, have you guys done any trials uh, in terms of, because you guys are, you're certified biodynamic, right? And you continue to continue that certification or no? Yes. Yeah. We're okay, um, yeah. Yeah. So we're still biodynamic. Still biodynamic uh, in addition to regenerative organic. Um, you know, I, I, I just heard something, a, a winery there who's doing like a side by side comparison now between conventional and I think regenerative organic viticulture to do like a, you know, sort of a side by side trial. Um, I'm just curious if you guys have. We worked with Cal Poly in the soil science department and we got um the healthy soil initiative grant a couple years back and so we did a lot of um testing of carbon sequestering in the vineyard because of our practices whether it was till or no till using the livestock how we manage an organic vineyard um so we've done a lot of like paying attention to the soil our nitrogen levels stuff like that as far as flavors and being able to taste any different I think it's more about healthy vines on healthy soil produce healthy grapes um, yeah. and and a more accurate expression of place. Yeah. And I think that is what our wines have always done, been really expressive and very, you know, I mean, uh, the terroir gets overused all the time and I'm going to overuse it again because it's just, if you want real terroir, you it's got to be honest 
and it's got to be uh, raw. This, it, the same thing coming out of the vineyard is what you're getting in the glass, and that's how you get a a snapshot of a year at Tablas Creek, you know, in a glass. And yeah. that's that's why wine is so addicting because it's an incredible <laughs> capture of time that can be held for years and years later, and it reflects the place so well. Um, yeah. so I, I think, I think there, uh, there are a lot lighter wines than a lot of the wines made in the Paso area. Um, we, we really try to keep that European style We're you know, we're picking a lot earlier than some of our neighbors. Um, and they're, you know, more food, food friendly wines because of that. Um, yeah, but they're really complex as well. So really yeah. complex whites. Yeah. Uh, they've always said the the whites came out way better here than they even expected. There's um, the whites are pretty amazing at Tablas. Fantastic. Well, Nathan, I, I mean, I just think my instincts in in wanting to talk to you, I think, have been proven in that what you're doing and and the 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 animal component is really just such an integral and necessary way to start thinking about agriculture in general vineyards specifically um i mean even to the point of like maybe we need to plant our vineyards differently to accommodate animals uh, in the way that they should be incorporated um and i just uh, thank you so much for bringing this perspective (laughs) i think it's really revolutionary uh it's very cool well thanks for giving me the time to get on the soapbox i I really do think uh, livestock back in agriculture could really really turn things around um watch that ted talk if you haven't by about desertification and he really just shows the amount of carbon we can capture back into the soil and hold forever um it's incredible it it gives hope in an environment that doesn't seem very hopeful there's so much stuff that people see all the time that's just so negative about the future and um and the planet and i've always been really critical of any like magical thing that's supposed to save the planet if it's not scalable and livestock and land and large pieces of land is very scalable and that's what we need because we need to make big changes on big pieces of land quickly because that's what we've been doing slowly over the past 50 you know 100 years slowly cutting down the forest slowly you know burning carbon um so we need to make big fast changes on large pieces of land yep so, so that's Alan Savory, A L L A N Savory, TED Savory. Talk about desertification. One S, not two, not not the delicious <laughs> follow up to a meal. Um, uh, and then the thing I just remembered: it's Rosario Dawson is the narrator of the Need to Grow, and that was that thing that we were talking about earlier with the the that biochar right. or methane plant, electrical that's plant. Another that's, documentary that definitely should be watched incredible yeah um but yeah just like you said the technology is there to have a fully self-sustaining green zero pollutant system that powers and feeds like an entire city block Um, yeah if you have a billionaire make him watch that because exactly billionaires (laughs) to make more of those (laughs) exactly a lot more yeah um is there any way that you would want people to get in touch with you? Are you contactable? Are you or, or... Um, Nathan at tablascreek.com. Any questions, especially about um, sheep and vineyard, actually only about sheep and vineyard, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Tablas Creek has made it like their policy to basically anybody that has 
questions and wants help on that, I'm, I'm to be available. So that's something very generous they offer. Um, that's fantastic. My time on that. So feel free and I will get back to you and I'll get on the phone with you and talk your ear off. So awesome. And, this and if, my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure for some, if anybody's like me, this just whets your appetite for more. So uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's fantastic. And and if anybody doesn't know Tablas Creek, definitely go to tablascreek.com. Uh, like I said, one of the, the great, one of America's great wineries. Um, I mean, truly top five, you know, um, so get to know and get to taste for sure. Um, Nathan, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Adam. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave a review on whatever app you're using to listen. It's a big help. Nathan made a great point about how the simple choices you make as a consumer, whether to buy this wine or that wine, can shape the way huge pieces of the earth are treated. That's why I started this podcast, and that's why I started my winery, Centralis. I wanted to promote people who are farming in a way that improves life on planet Earth. You can support these farmers by buying Tablas Creek wines, as Nathan said, as well as by buying Centralis wines. All Centralis wines, my winery, are made from grapes that were grown organically or better. You can learn more and buy wine at tablascreek.com. That's T-A-B-L-A-S creek.com or at our website centraliswine.com that's c-e-n-t-r-a-l-a-s wine.com it's an easy and delicious way to promote a cleaner healthier and more hopeful future for the planet thanks